I want you to just imagine for a moment that your identity, your sense of self, who you are, is like a table. And that table has four legs that hold it up. So my question is, what would your four legs be? What are the what would be the things about your identity that hold up your sense of self and who you are? It could be anything. Um, so it could be the kind of person you are. I'm honest. I'm giving. I'm whatever. It could be your faith. It could be your family. It could be your work. It could be anything. This is your table. I can't tell you what holds it up. You with me? Okay. So think about those four things for just a moment. This is roughly what, what my table would look like. So this is, this is me, all right? So my family, my faith, my work, which is my ministry here, and my sense of capability that I am able to do things well and, you know, not do them poorly. Um, do these all define who I am? No, I just chose these for this exercise this morning. So, um, so I have these four things, and imagine I was going to try to act this out this morning, but it's, you'll see why I chose not to in a moment. Uh, so imagine that I'm standing on this table that is held up by these four things. And these four things, as I stand on this table, this is my sense of self and who I am. Now, what happens when one of these legs doesn't support you anymore? So, Jed, go to the next slide. This is why I did not act this out in person. Now, if that one leg is gone, my capability, so I don't feel that I'm as capable anymore, and, and that's something that has made me who I am, uh, in order to stay balanced on my sense of self, what do I have to do? I, I have to move, I have to shift, right? I cannot simply stand in the middle anymore and guarantee that this table is going to hold me. I'm going to want to move away from that thing that's no longer there. I'm going to want to move over to put more weight on these other things, right? Just makes sense. Okay. Uh, so what happens if another one gives way? I can technically still stand on this identity. But now, what was sort of complicated when there were three legs becomes much more complicated when I'm down to two. I can balance there. However, any movement in the wrong direction is going to upset my balance and my sense of self will suffer because of it. But at this point, I've already lost two legs, so I'm already feeling, I'm feeling the loss of that sense of self and that sense of identity. And of course, if you remove one more, what happens? <laughs> the table will fall because it simply cannot stand on one leg. Now, I left faith up there for a reason. 
Because I know what some of you are thinking, or at least I can speculate as to what some of you are thinking. Well, faith is the most important one, right? And if you just move faith to the middle, then everything can stand. Now, I'm not going to tell you that this is not possible. I would be a bad preacher if I told you that it's not possible. And if you want to make that connection, that's fine. But there is a tendency to think that if we hold on to our faith, the table will stay remarkably, through the power of God, balanced. But there's one problem for me with thinking that. And, and the problem is, th- this is, this is my identity. This is me. And when I lose something, if I were to lose something that gives me perfect purpose and is a part of my core identity, when you lose something that is part of your core identity, something that makes you who you are, what is one of the first things you ask God? Why did this happen to me? And then the second love gives way. And what do you ask God then? God, really, really, why did this happen to me? And then the third leg gives way, and your response is, oh, come on. (laughs) So, yes, faith is good, but again, let's not pretend that this exercise, this mental exercise, is a faith strengthener, because it's not. It is a faith stressor. And the more things that are taken away, the more pressure is put on our faith. And here's where I have a problem. My faith, I don't know that my faith can hold that much weight. The good news is God's faithfulness can, but my faith is going to struggle. And that's natural, right? That's the way life is. Today we are going to look at someone we know so very well because he's one important dude. Besides God, he is the star of the Exodus. But he was a man for whom personal identity was a real problem. So much so that I don't think we can understand his future actions if we don't understand how he got to where he was when God spoke to him. So, dear friends, I present to you this morning the many lives of Moses. Before we talk about his life, I want to suggest that sometimes we approach biblical characters with a faulty premise. We carry inside of us an idea about these people when we read about them in the scriptures. And, and, and this idea, which again is a false idea, is that we assume that an encounter with God should be enough to change them completely, even if that encounter lasts for just a moment. Now we have plenty of examples of this happening throughout the Bible, especially in the ministry of Jesus. And we can read about people who were going one direction, and then upon encountering Jesus, their life changes, and they are not the same. 
So because we carry this assumption that this should happen, someone encounters God and it's miraculous and then their life changes, we have a hard time understanding how someone could disagree with God when God shows up. And what's funny about that is we have far more examples of people arguing with some manifestation of God than we do of people's lives automatically changing once they experience God. And, you know, we could go over and over them. So the first two people, right, that exist, were seduced to go against God by a snake when they had been walking and talking with God every day. Uh, That's a pretty cutting example to me. Uh, How about this? We witness a man arguing with a donkey over which way they should go. We witness a man being swallowed by a giant fish, live in that fish for three days, get spit out on the land, and be mad at God that he has to go do what God wants him to do. We witness a man lose everything and argue with God about how unfair it is. And most importantly today, we witness a man arguing with a talking flaming bush. What does that tell us, friends? It tells us that this idea of encountering God and how that should automatically change someone's life is in fact not automatic. Sometimes it's a huge struggle. And how, we wonder, how could this be the case? I mean, if God appeared to me, I would definitely listen and do everything he told me to do. Number one, you're so cute. You think that's the case. But number two, you know, I I think we read a little bit of our own experience into this, right? Because when we see other people encountering God in such a dramatic way, I, I want that experience. I mean, I don't want to be swallowed by a fish, but I, I wouldn't mind talking to a burning bush. Like, I'm okay with that. I, I, I have some desire for that to be the case. And so when I look at people who are experiencing God in this dynamic way, I kind of don't get it, you know? I, I don't understand how it doesn't change them. But then, if I really think about it, I remember that these people that are encountering God are first and foremost people. They are like us. We are like them. They have problems, insecurities, fears, pride. They are stubborn and willful. They have their own ideas of how things should go. These are not saints that we are dealing with throughout most of the Bible. And Moses, the man who argued with the bush, is no different. But he got to where he was because of a very peculiar path that his life took. And the best way to understand is to start with his identity and to ask ourselves the question, what must Moses' sense of self be as his story moves throughout the early part of his life? And it's a complicated question, 
because before Moses ever speaks to the burning bush, he had many lives. Let's start with life number one. His first life was as a poor Hebrew slave. Open your Bibles up to Exodus chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. And we're going to start with verses 1 through 10. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Quick review, why did she do this? Because Egyptians were ordered that whenever they saw a Hebrew male child, they could kill it. So she has this son, and she wants to hide him from everybody. So she made the basket, put him into the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Okay, we're pretty familiar with this part of the story, yeah? Yeah. Um, And there's much to say about this story and about the people involved. In fact, I preached a whole sermon at the end of last summer just about the women that were involved in this. And you can go back and listen to that if you want a little bit more information there. But here's what we need to appreciate about this moment. Moses was born into a situation so awful, it is hard to imagine a worse scenario. It, It really is. It's that bad. The Hebrews were once an important and valued segment of Egyptian society. And they became so on the back of the deeds of Joseph, who had put them in that place. But as they grew and became more fruitful, Egypt began to see them as a threat. So in order to keep this threat at bay, a pharaoh uh, who no longer remembered the deeds of Joseph, who's Joseph, I don't care anymore, decided to enslave the Israelites and break them through work and ruthless treatment. This did not work. The Hebrew people continued to be fruitful. The Pharaoh then ordered the midwives to kill all of the male babies when they were born, but the midwives refused to do so. Sorry, Pharaoh, we can't get there in time to, you know, throw these babies out. So Pharaoh ordered all Egyptians to kill any male child that came across on site. Now, this is awful, but I want you to picture this for a moment because I don't know that I had thought about it this way. Can you imagine being a parent during this time? 
would, would, would Hebrew families even take their children outside? I mean, granted, they, probably, they had their own quarter, their own section of the city where they lived. Let's go to the other extreme. Did people actually approach a mother, tear the baby boy out of her arms, and kill it in front of her? Every indication is yes. And there was no prescription on how to do this. So you could kill the baby however you wanted to, and then just leave it there. That's gross. It's awful. And it is this terrifying and violent scenario that it's the backdrop for the birth of Moses. Therefore, from the time of his birth, Moses was a man that was set against Egypt. He was declared by Pharaoh at the time to be an enemy of the state. He was to be destroyed and not to live. He was born a slave without any rights. He was the target of a murder scheme. It was so bad, get this, it was so bad that his mother thought it would be better to put him in a basket in the river than to take him out in public. That's how bad it is. And a part of me wonders as much hope she might have, as she might have had for this baby to survive, a part of me wonders if she just didn't want to see him killed by some Egyptian stranger. Knowing that was likely to be his fate. He was nursed by his mother, so he spent his very early years in a Hebrew house that had to be protected. I mean, she was, his mother was being paid to nurse him which is a pretty good gig, right? And, and he was living under the protection, but there's baggage that comes with this because he was potentially the only protected male child of his generation. Think about that for a moment. He is the only protected Hebrew male child in Egypt. More on this in a moment. So that was his first life. Slave, target of murder, or target of attempted murder, I should say, and all those other things. But he quickly moved into his second life, which is where he was adopted by a princess. Is this a Disney movie? No, it's not, because his parents didn't die at the beginning. True. Um, he was adopted by the princess. The princess, the daughter of Pharaoh, adopted him out of the river. She had gone down to the river to bathe, and her attendants found the basket carrying Moses and the reeds along the river. Now, here, there's some remarkable things about this interaction between the princess and um, Moses' sister and Moses himself. She, she picks him up, you know, out of the basket because he's crying, and, and the account says that she felt sorry for him. But she also recognizes what about him. He is a Hebrew baby. She knows that. So, what should she have done with the Hebrew baby? She should have killed it. I mean, she, she 
the easiest thing to have done would have been to just tell one of her attendants to go drop the baby further down in the river. They're in the river anyway, right? That would have been the easiest thing for them to do. But for reasons we don't know, other than perhaps she has a soft heart, she decided to adopt Moses. So, from the very beginning of Moses' story, his story is a story about being rescued, about being delivered from a terrible situation into a better situation. But it is also a story of defiance. Pharaoh was defied by his own daughter in order to, in her choice, I should say, to keep Moses alive. How unlikely of a story is this? It's pretty unlikely. And something we haven't ever considered either is if she wanted to adopt a boy, could she have? She's the daughter of Pharaoh. She could probably choose whichever child she wanted if she wanted to adopt a boy. Instead, she adopted a slave boy that floated into her bath. She sent him home to be nursed, and once he was old enough, he moved into the palace, and he was given the name Moses because she pulled him from the river. But I wonder, and we're not told this as far as I know, I wonder if he had a Hebrew name at home. I mean, if he lived there long enough to be nursed and to grow, he probably did, which is an important thought, that he might have had two names. Is he still a slave? Interesting question. Though he gets to grow up in privilege, does he ever stop being a Hebrew? No, he doesn't. And let's get back to the fact that he is the only protected male child of the Hebrews in the land of Egypt. Can you imagine the guilt that would come with that? With that knowledge? How can Moses begin to deal with the feelings that had to come up in him as uh, a boy and a young adult? Knowing he was not Egyptian, but he was Hebrew, but he was living with Egyptian royalty, and he was maybe the only child of his, male child of his age that was alive. What must it have felt like for him to see his family, his people, being treated so horribly while he lived in the palace? So the question we have to ask ourselves after just these few verses is, who is he? Who is he? Is he a slave or is he royalty? Could the two be any further apart within this scenario? This problem leads us directly to his third life. Life number three, he is a murderer and a fugitive. From Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. 
he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Okay. Now, Moses killed the Egyptian that was beating the Hebrew. Why did he do this? Okay, this is a, this is a man having a full-blown identity crisis in this moment. Because while his intentions may be good, the action is over the top and somewhat impetuous. Um, he's struggling with who he is. Here's how we know. If he had stepped forward as a member of the princess's house and told the Egyptian to stop being the Hebrew, would the, Egypt, would the Egyptian had to have stopped? Theoretically, yes, that he would have had some amount of authority over this person. The problem is that Egyptians could be as cruel and ruthless to Hebrew slaves as they wanted to be. So if Moses steps out and tries to intervene in a more normal sort of way, what would that say about him? It would say that even though he is raised with Egyptian royalty, that he is identifying himself with the Hebrews, which, in fact, he is identifying himself with the Hebrews. If that becomes known, it would put the life he had at risk. I mean, maybe at the least he would be kicked out of the palace. Maybe he would be killed. I imagine that growing up, he faced a lot of insults about not really being Egyptian about being adopted, about his life and the life that he was living. So he cannot simply intervene and tell the Egyptian to stop, but he also could not let it go. He saw the situation as unjust, which objectively it is unjust. One of his people was being beaten mercilessly by an Egyptian for no other reason that we are given than he's a Hebrew. So as much as Moses did not want to be outed, he could not simply let this happen. So his solution was to do what? I'll just kill him. Now, this, to a degree, is premeditated murder. Because what does he do before he goes and kills him? He looks around. Thank you, Megan. He looks around and sees that no one is looking. So... He went and killed the Egyptian because no one is looking and then buried the Egyptian in the sand. Not a great idea, by the way, to bury uh, in the sand. So at this point, what have been the ideal outcome for Moses? Nobody sees, nobody knows. He feels good about sticking up for his people in an unjust situation, and he goes back to his palace life. But that's not how the situation plays out, and it gets more complicated because the next day he sees these two Hebrews fighting, and he says, guys, can't we all just get along? You know, you're brothers, you're the same people, why are you fighting one another? And what the guy says is this, 
who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Now, this statement is a huge problem for a couple of reasons. Moses put his life on the line to kill someone else, weirdly enough, to defend his people. So first and foremost, it shows that people know what happened, and he had to be thinking at this point, how long will it be until word gets back to an Egyptian of influence that this happened? But this statement is kind of worse than that, because what does this statement say about Moses' relationship with the Hebrew people? They don't respect him. Here he had stood up for the Hebrew people, and their response was to do what? To make fun of him. To mock him. Consider this. In his mind, his action was one of solidarity with his people. This is him stepping out to do what he can. And in these few sentences, the response says, you're not one of us. You're not. So he's not Egyptian, even though that's how he lives. He's not Hebrew, though that's where he is from. So who is he? Will Egypt forgive him? No. <laughs> Decidedly, no. Pharaoh found out about the murder and tried to kill him. That life is gone in one moment. Will the Hebrews protect him? No. Why should they? He's lived in a palace all this time while we are beaten over nothing. What do we owe him? So what can he do? Where can he go? Who is he? At this point, even we don't know what he is. I mean, how can we? when he probably has no idea at all who he is. All of the legs of the table are gone. And he does the only thing he can do. He runs. Which leads him to the last part of his life from Exodus chapter 2, where he is fugitor, fugitor, <laughs> fugitive farmer. That was what I was getting mixed up there. Fugitive farmer, family man, the three F's. Of life. So from Exodus chapter 2, verses 16 through 22. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Remember, he sort of landed at this well. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, This is funny. An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to his son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. I sometimes... Well, not sometimes. I am often grateful that we don't name our children like people in the Old Testament named their children. <laughs> What's your name? Failure. 
what's your name? Abandoned. Like, it's just, you know, I digress. He decided he couldn't stay in Egypt, so he ran. And where did he go? Midian. Now, here's something you might not have considered. Jed, can you bring up the map? Midian was more than 200 miles from where he was living in Egypt. So if you look over here where it says Exodus chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, that's where he was living in the household of Pharaoh. Midian was all the way over here, and Jethro's house is roughly down here. So he traveled, and you know we can't assume it was in a straight line, <laughs> so he traveled 250 miles to get to Midian. No wonder he collapsed by the well. Now here's something else that's interesting. All of this territory up through here belonged to Egypt. So he was not clear of Egypt until he got to the other side of this ridge and this inlet here. He had to travel that far in order to get to a place where he might be safe. So what does that tell us? It took him time to get there. It took him time to get there. That was a long way So he likely had a pretty long and rough road from Egypt all the way to Jethro's house. I'm sorry, Ruel is Jethro. I don't know why you would go by Ruel if you had Jethro sitting in your pocket. You know, it's a a great name. So he likely had a long and rough road. and, And we don't know how far it spread that he was a fugitive. So did he have to hide along the way? What did he have to do in order to get there? It's it's an interesting question because the Bible doesn't cover the journey, right? We just get him from Egypt to Midian. When he got there, he encountered the seven daughters of Ruel being bullied by some shepherds. So he stepped in and protected the daughters. So now we do know something concrete about him. Um. What is Moses' reaction to seeing um, obvious injustice? He gets angry, and he intervenes where he can. So that is not taken out of him because of the circumstances in Egypt or because of his journey. At worst, we can say he was offended by injustice, But this offense spurs him into action. He feels the need to intervene and follows through with it. And because of this interaction, Moses was adopted into Jethro's family. He was given a place to live, work, and ultimately a wife and child. But how does he feel about his life? He might be happy, but what does he name his first child? I am a foreigner in a foreign land. Who am I and where is my home? But here's the thing. Even though he felt this way and even though his life was so confusing, he was still a Hebrew. He was still an Egyptian. He was still a slave. He was still royalty. He was still a murderer and a fugitive. And he became a protector, husband, and father. 
And it's not like all those things that had happened to him just went away because now he's in the comfort of Jethro's home with his own family. He had a new life, but the old, confusing, troubling life that he had was not so far behind him. And he was still looking for an identity. Who am I? Where do I belong? And luckily enough for him, something else was happening in the world. We see this in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help became, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now again, we talked about this last week. Did he literally forget about his covenant? No. But what had he decided? It is time for me to intervene. And so he needed someone to be his champion. But it could not simply be anyone. It had to be someone who could become all about the work of God, who would allow their identity to be formed wholly by this mission that God was going to send him out, putting him in dangerous situations against powerful people. He would have to be someone that could lead and draw others to him. But more than that, he would have to be someone who would rely on the power of God to do all of this and more because God was about to do something unseen ever by human eyes. He was going to demonstratively work in the lives of his people. So what, did, what kind of person did he need? Someone who had a lot of room for a new identity. A lot of room. I want to suggest to you that we have the opportunity to build our sense of self around a lot of things. And, and often we decide what the four legs to our table are. And sometimes that decision of what our table looks like and what is holding us up and our sense of self, sometimes that doesn't leave a lot of room for outside input. Because this is where we stand. It's a scary thing, though, for us to think about those things being stripped away. I mean, Moses' story should scare the locusts out of us. Who are we when those things that hold us up are taken away? So the story reminds us of something that is hard for us to grasp and even harder for us to live. And that is this. An empty vessel has a lot of space to be filled. And as is the case with Moses, that space can be filled by God and his purposes and his powers and what he wants to do through you in the world. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Because what did Jesus say? In Matthew chapter 10, he says, Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. 
Moses' story reminds us about how hard life can be, about how quickly the things that we hold to be important can be stripped away from us. Some of it may be of our own doing. Some of it may be because of, you know, circumstances we had no control or issues over. So life is fragile. But you know, the the hard thing for us to remember is that sometimes the table breaking down could ultimately be a really good thing. I know... I know how uncomfortable that sounds. After all, we generally probably have all built our platform based on things that we think are good and worthwhile and important. It's not like one of the legs is gummy bears, you know? Although that would be a delicious leg. We have built this because it holds us and it's important and it makes us who we are. But let me tell you something. Moses could not have become Moses if his life hadn't completely fallen apart. And it's because his life was so empty and so in need, excuse me, so in need of something to fill him that he becomes the perfect leader for God's mission. What do we do with that? I'm not sure. Don't start chopping up your table today. All right? Give it some thought. Give it some prayer. But it does remind us that in losing our life, we just might find it. 